uh, it was all a dream, right? That's something that we hear a lot in, 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 in films and TV, even Biggie, right? It was all a dream. I used to read mm. Word Up magazine. Uh, and, and that's a trope that's become so, you know, uh, that's like the laziest, yeah. yeah, most tired thing you can do at the end of a story where somebody goes, oh, no. Oh, I just had the worst dream. Well, what but... if I told you? Yeah, what if I told you that in in my opinion, one of the best films of the last thirty fucking years, like mm. employed the it was all a dream, and in no way does it suffer. In fact, it makes you go back and say, "Holy shit, that movie is a magic trick." Oh my god, what what movie is this? I've never heard of such a thing. Talking about David, our boy. Or where's my burrito favorite? All right, David Lynch. We uh, talking about David Lynch's. Is it two thousand or two thousand one? Two thousand one. Two thousand one masterpiece, opus. I would say, mm -hmm. man. Uh, Mulholland Drive. Now, let's give a little bit of context. We're not just talking about Mulholland Drive. We're gonna talk about Under the Silver Lake as well, which is David Robert Mitchell's follow up to It Follows. Yeah, uh, have some feelings there. Follow up to It Follows. Damn, I should, should should I have said the follow ups? The I, you fucked me up. Well, welcome to <laughs> movies and shit. I'm Max, joined with uh, Christian. This guy, here. yeah, yeah. We're gonna talk about Under the Silver Lake and Mulholland Drive. Um, this is an idea we've had for a while to do something. Well, this was your idea originally. Your original pitch Damn. was to do something called Dick Picks. Uh, so dick welcome picks. to uh, movies and shit. Like dick picks. No, <laughs> dick like, picks. Yeah, there you go. Better. You're honoring me. Yeah. No. I wanted to do this thing, and it's weird because we shuffled the uh, pairing. We were going to do what, Under the Silver Lake and Chinatown for some reason because they're more yeah. detective, I guess. But the truth is, we're going to pair that with LA Confidential, Chinatown. Really excited to do that at a later date. But today, we're going to do Under the Silver Lake, and we're going to do Mulholland Drive. Yeah. I want to start with Mulholland Drive, if you don't mind. I think that we ended up choosing these films, and we also paired Chinatown and LA confidential uh subconsciously because they're la films i want yeah. to talk about the la film uh, movement as it were right you know films that depict la and i think that maholland drive does not get the fucking credit it deserves in terms of its depiction of la uh mm -hmm. and in terms of just like how effective it fucking is at doing everything like again you're not a sports guy man but like growing up we used to watch boxing a lot right? I, I love that like the past 10 podcasts we've done you're not a sports guy but i sports metaphors are my life dude you have to understand right? you, you don't like, you don't have to like have that qualifier at the beginning i, I feel like you just want people to know i'm not a i'm sports trying to shame you <laughs> yeah like i know this is a movie podcast but also sports podcast what am i going to do that with myself come on max you got to be there you gotta start watching. I sports. mean, I I, it, I could come at it like with the angle that I don't know anything about sports. It could be like the guy hit the ball. I was on a show like that once where the guy didn't know anything and it wasn't good. That's all oh. I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on very quickly. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, there, there. You know, I grew up watching boxing a lot, like in in yeah. the '90s and the 2000s and stuff when boxing was in its heyday. And every now right. and then, you would get a boxing match that was billed as like this fight of the century thing that's going to happen. And what would happen is you would you would find out, oh, no, that guy's being outclassed like a motherfucker. And, right. and I've seen so many fights where, like, going in, there was going to be this hype. And what you saw was a fighter in the, the peak of his athleticism and the peak of his, like, knowledge of how to fucking fight that he's doing anything he wants. He's not getting hit. He's weaving. He's connecting on every single fucking point that he wants to connect on. When we talk about David Lynch, I mean, I think you you go to Twin Peaks first, maybe. Maybe that's, like, his greatest gift to the larger pop culture conversation. 
Right. Uh, but you could, or you could blue velvet, blue velvet. I was going to say, you could say blue velvet. You could even say eraser head in terms of like, holy shit, that's like a, a jarring debut. Right. Mulholland drive recognized by most people as a great film, but I feel gets lost in the sauce when we talk about David Lynch in general, because twin peaks is so uh, reverential and uh, because he came back recently and just added a little cherry on top to twin peaks, you know? So it's easy to forget that, but Mulholland drive is very fucking special to me, Max. It's a wonderful movie, man. Yeah, it might be my favorite movie if I had to pick one. And like, you know, I, I've never had to before, but I have said in the past that it's my favorite or up there because it's one of those special movies that uh, every time I watch it, um, I forget at a certain point that I'm watching a movie and I kind of become sort of transported. And there are a few moments in this movie. Um, one scene in particular, audition scene, you'll know what I'm talking about if you've seen it, where you forget that you're watching a movie and you become completely drawn in and Lynch knows this and pulls the rug out from under you. And it's not the only time that it happens in the movie. It's not the first or the last, um, but it's just such a great example of why it works so well is because he's so able to just sort of draw you in, know he's drawing you in and then pull you right back out. Well, yeah, that's, that's kind of a part of the discomfort and the horror of it and also the beauty of it too. Right. Um, yeah. Well, no, again, a boxer who knows exactly how to land the punch. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Like, and it, it's weird as much as I love all of his other work. Watching it today, and this is a movie that I've seen so many times. I mean, I, don't, I didn't yeah. need to rewatch it. I'm so glad I did because I saw things in a way that it's not that I hadn't seen them before, but I saw the great clarity. You know, as we get older, as we get more serious about the craft of filmmaking, like what goes into that, you start to notice the fine details. I think I've said on this podcast before that recently, like when I'm watching stuff, all I'm seeing is like the, uh, the script format, right? Like yeah. exterior, uh, nighttime, it's raining, blah, blah, blah. Julia walks mm -hmm. into the room and I'm like, oh shit, I see it. I can see it visualized. Now it's like, what's so successful about Mulholland Drive to me is the idea that if specifically when you know it's coming, it's all there all the visual language you could possibly want to really like hold your hand. It's, you know, we talked about this before when you buy this on DVD or Blu-ray, it used to come with like a little insert sleeve from David yeah. Lynch, right? Like here's how ten, to watch. <laughs> like he needed ten, to hold ten your clues, pay attention to the lamp. But that's my point now, yeah. now, cause you know, what's coming, right? I don't even think you need those clues. You start to pick it up on your own. Right. Yeah. And the thing that's so impressive to me about this is like, and I think David Lynch, for whatever reason, doesn't get credit for how beautifully shot some of his stuff is. I don't mm -hmm. know why, but you know, when you talk about like, maybe because he doesn't work with a super flashy cinematographer always, but his compositions right. are beautiful. He understands how to frame something. And, and I would say that this really is the fucking like watershed moment because yes, it was all a dream. We'll maybe get into the actual specifics of that at a, at a later time. But when you're in the dream world, it is shot old Hollywood right yeah. it's shot beautifully i uh, stars in your eyes uh, everything is glamour shots and shit like that and whenever right. you're in this other world even though you're not being told that you're in this other world visually you should know because everything is grimy everything's dark everything is not mm -hmm. as well lit. everything's a, a nightmare pretty well, much yeah and that's kind of what we get into right because it's like dreams and nightmares that's yeah. the entire so, premise of this this movie go ahead sorry yeah so we're talking in very very vague terms here uh let's, let's it, set the let's set the scenery a little bit behind the scenes sort of knowledge on this movie started off as a pilot for i believe it was nbc abc was NBC, abc um 
it was going to be his uh, follow-up. He'd done a few things, but basically his first major follow-up to Twin Peaks in several years. Um, they ended up passing on the pilot. So from the pieces of that pilot, he uh, started assembling a movie, shot some extra scenes, and we ended up with the final product that we have today. You would think that that would end up being like a total fucking mess, um, but it ends up kind of working in the movie's favor because like all the things that were shot for the TV pilot sort of translate to that old Hollywood style of filmmaking where everything is sort of brightly lit and sunny and the edges are soft and everything. And then there's this other sort of nightmarish, more cinematic um, new Hollywood style butting up against that, which right. works perfectly for the turn that happens in the last third of the movie. I was going to say what I think is even more impressive about that because, I mean, you can make a conscious choice to visually show that it's different. We, like, dude, we were talking about Fantastic Four the other day, that reboot, right? Mm -hmm. Where we're like, yo, that was shot like only a year apart from each other uh, yeah. in 2013. <laughs> and we were like, what the fuck? Like, the fact that at that time, and this was still shooting on film, there wasn't like as much digital correcting in, in post, you know what I mean? Right. It's seamless. Like that, there's at no point do I'm like, oh, that's a reshoot that's a reshoot you know what i mean like it all works perfectly uh in unison and i think that's amazing and also just makes me also respect that guy a lot more because uh yeah, yeah he shot it as a pilot and what's interesting is in the final cut of this movie you still see the pilot threads you know what i mean mm -hmm. like you meet those two detectives like robert forster and the one guy who was in the return and like <laughs> right. you're like what's the, where are the where are those guys coming from you know what i mean <laughs> what, what are they up to next we never find out yeah. um and it's like, it's interesting that he still set up all these intriguing premises, which I think largely uh, make up like this mosaic of what's scary about Los Angeles. I think this is what I wanted to talk about a little bit earlier. When he did Twin Peaks The Return, I told you that that opening shot in the pilot where he's showing New York, it's like, that's the most iconic fucking skyline ever. It's been, it's been shot a thousand times, if not more. We know what it looks like, and yet it was horrifying in Twin Peaks The Return. I had never seen New York from that menacing of an angle. And L.A. is also kind of terrifying in this movie, Max. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you said that this was one of the reasons you didn't want to go to L.A. originally. Um, right. I remember back when you were scared of L.A. And done like with you it. Still, still, oh, you're done with it? <laughs> I'm, I'm done again. <laughs> I needed this. My bags were packed. We were like, let's, oh. do, let's do a going away party. What do you want to do? I don't know, let's watch Mahal and Drive. Nope. I'm done. I'm staying on the East Coast. No, but for the longest time, it did scare me. Like, that's what I thought of it. And I think what's interesting about this movie is that Lynch is making a commentary on that, obviously. You know what yeah. I mean? About that like, creative, this, this land of, uh, of opportunity and dreams and everyone's going to express yeah. themselves. Bullshit, man. It swallows so, you up. Brief plot synopsis. Um, I can try to take this one as it, best Bobby. I can. Because Do it. It, does, it does have a coherent plot for the most part. Um, in most basic terms, uh, a young a young woman comes to Los Angeles with dreams of uh, making it in Hollywood and becoming a famous actress, um, meets a woman who has amnesia, and uh, they basically try to tackle this mystery of what's happened to this woman, um, what's going on, and you start to realize there are all these different powerful forces at play and these sinister, maybe supernatural forces at play that are dictating how the events of the movie are occurring. And then at a certain point in the movie, I don't know, we should probably spoil it since it's a review, but we can do that later. At a certain point in the movie, you realize that everything that came before may or may not be true, or it may be married with a shadow version of what you've seen. Um, but it makes you rethink everything that you've seen before. Um, 
Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, that, that's well, pretty much Mahondra. Is there any ambiguity in your mind? Because what I'm saying is, when I watch it this time, like zero. Oh yeah, ambiguity. no, it's it's very it's very clear to me. But some right. people are like adamant that uh, no, like maybe it's like a, a yin and yang thing where like the sunniest possible version of events are butting up against the um, most dark and negative version. <sighs> yeah, of but, but see, that's the but that's where I'm gonna like really be staunchly in opposition of that interpretation i think art is yeah, largely like how you feel about it or whatever and, and and whatever you could take away from it i said this when you write theses it's not that you have to be able to be right you just have to be able to defend your viewpoint um i yeah. think that's the larger point and um i mean you're right like basically with 30 minutes left to go the the rug is pulled from underneath us again mm -hmm. and it sucks because we have been following about two hours of a narrative now right following this person yeah. and there is like a sense of optimism in that story that we had seen uh right. and, and then when we get into this other world it's it's really difficult i think the first time anyone watches this to accept what you're seeing because it's mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable it forces you to confront uh what you know in storytelling like you right. know me i'm a structure guy but just because i know the name for it doesn't mean that everybody who watches films doesn't un inherently understand the beats of storytelling right yeah yeah absolutely uh, well, and I, I think that when we finally get to that moment, the entire third act is, is, is proving itself. Like, no, there's no, this isn't up for debate. I mean, like, yeah. for me, uh, they, every character that you met along the way, you understand where they came from. You understand their connection. You understand how she's internalized this. If mm -hmm. you really think about it, dream theory and stuff, if we're all, if we're everyone in our dreams, right? Like, yeah. all those characters are having these crises that directly relate back to her in the real world you know what i mean so right for me and i know i'm just talking in circles and vague generalities right now and maybe i shouldn't i'm just saying that for me the end of that movie is is really wonderful because you understand that it's wish fulfillment to a certain degree it's mm -hmm. the most idealized version of yourself um, yeah yeah i mean it, and, and, it might it might be lynch's most uh uh devastating and empathetic uh, movies in a weird way um like the final shot of it like kind of wrecks me a little bit um with the superimposed image of you know uh betty and rita and the together again or whatever like yeah. over the skyline of a dark los angeles with the theme coming in from angela battle yeah um we, we should mention uh i guess we could talk about performances a little bit um naomi watts uh might be one of my favorite performances of all time and this is a very young Naomi Watts. Um, like yeah, and let's point out, if I can jump in quickly, Naomi Watts about to leave L.A., about to go back to Australia, like like not having a good time in her career when she does this movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, or does a TV show. She thinks she's doing a fucking TV show. I need to throw that right. out there until like a year later where Lynch has to go to fucking France to get money. To, to, as an addendum to our Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood conversation, very quickly, we talked about how Tarantino has been very unique and has done whatever he wanted but has been able to do that at a big budget like he's been playing within the studio uh system whereas like lynch has to go to fucking france to get money for shit i just need to point that out that like he does blows yeah. my mind for some reason um but yeah naomi watts is wonderful in this film because she has to walk that line she plays idealized uh the peppy happy optimistic betty mm -hmm. and then she also plays dejected uh beaten by life uh what's her name diane right diane yeah and so it's like yeah we've seen things where people play two people we recently saw in twin peaks the return we saw mclaughlin play three different versions uh, yeah. of, of a character so it's not like it's not within his wheelhouse but i would say like where dougie jones was played for laughs for the most part uh 
she's she's played for fucking tragedy, dude. And in in the hands of a lesser actress, that doesn't work. And just I know I'm ranting, but you mentioned the audition scene, and mm-hmm. I think that that is like holy shit. That fucking scene, you're right, is amazing because we see that scene earlier. She's auditioning with her with with Rita, and it's playful. And it's like, oh, you no way this is gonna play the right. same way. It, yeah, it, it's it's set up, it's planting and payoff. But um, it, yeah. So so like, I guess we can talk about the audition scene here. I just did want to briefly like touch on like how fucking wonderful she is in general because when the turn happens. So I guess we should just talk about what the turn is before I can get into anything else. So let's we can do it. Continue with this review. Uh, what you realize in the movie in the last 30 minutes is that everything that you've seen before is either a dream or a delusion or both um, by a woman named uh, Diane, uh, also played by Naomi Watts. It's a wish fulfillment thing where she's imagining herself to be this preternaturally talented, um, gifted, sunny optimist, where in reality her life has gone to shit. Um, the love of her life is uh, basically scorned her and like is marrying some other guy. Uh, she's been embarrassed and humiliated at every turn, and she's hired a hitman to kill this woman. Uh, she's at her lowest of lows, and her guilt is eating away at her from the insides. So this is like a last-ditch effort for her to right. uh, essentially like save herself in her in her mind. It's like one last fantasy before she pulls the trigger and fucking kills herself. Well, what I um, like about it too is unlike a lot of other things that do the dream sequences, like the, there is an erosion of the dream as the as the film progresses, and what that really can be linked to is the slow realization. Like there, there are times where I mean, there are like there are scenes that I'm watching this movie this time, and I'm just like, motherfucker, kind of weird to be calling yourself. Maybe it's not me. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, yeah. uh, I feel like I'm in some kind of dream state, dream world. Right. She says, like, it, the, like there's so much there that's like to grasp onto and to see it after the fact. You know what I mean? Um, right. Yeah. Well, well, to get back to that audition scene, the director in it is mentioned later in the Diane segment says, yeah, I got a small role in this movie. The director didn't like me very Bob much. Bob Booker. Yeah. Yeah. Bob Booker. Um, whereas in this audition scene as Betty in her fantasy, she goes to audition and it's set up, like you said, in the earlier scene where she's running through lines with Rita the woman who has amnesia, who we find out she's actually in love with in real life. Um, And she's running through these lines and it's just this terrible script and it comes off as stilted and they're even laughing at it out loud. And then we get to this audition scene and Lynch kind of puts the camera in like a medium close-up between her and this sort of like sleazy actor. And Naomi Watts' character just decides to go for it and completely sells it and completely changes the context of what came before. <laughs> but like again, completely. should should have been the first sign, right? Because that yeah. is wish fulfillment. Like she, this is a woman, like whoever goes into their first audition fresh out of the plane from, from Ontario, Deep River, from, from Ontario. The, yeah, seriously. <laughs> you know what I mean? And she nails it. Oh, she blows everyone away. Oh, let's go get you to meet this person. Maybe a neon demon, which didn't work mm-hmm. out well for her. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, yeah. we should have kind of known immediately that something was up there, but it's like, it's hard to because Lynch is, He's just right. pulling the fucking strings, man. Right. It, well, it's just done so well, that scene, because you're, you're completely drawn in. And like I said, you forget that you're not only watching her audition for a movie, you're sold on the scene that she's auditioning for. You also forget that you're watching a movie at all, at least I do, for a second, every time I watch that scene. And it's accomplished just by the grace of her performance, um, minimal editing, and a close-up. 
And then immediately when the audition is over, the camera pulls back to the room and it's almost played for laughs and like the rug is pulled out from under you. And it, it's like it's set in like later scenes, it's all an illusion, right? Right. And it's perfect setup for what's to come later. Um, Lynch does that several times throughout the movie. And I think it's interesting. Like just this idea of facade, the idea of film is facade and pretending. The idea of like using that as a byway for you to pretend or to go into some other dream place or fantasy well bringing up dreams this is certainly a motif right strange mm -hmm. dreams that are the keys to your real life right to your subconscious yeah. like all these things that are you're able to somehow communicate with yourself in this world but not uh, in the real world and what i was saying a little bit earlier is just the erosion of the dream as guilt catches up to her as mm -hmm. she has to be uh told <laughs> Right, rather, uh, like that, yeah. that that she's responsible for doing this thing. Like she's in this perfect world where Rita is her everything. Mm -hmm. Rita doesn't need anyone else. She gets to be her savior and her lover. Like, and, and the clues are all within that dream sequence too. I mean, just like the the scene where she actually pulls the key out before we go into that blue box. Which I'm I do want to kind of talk to you about the blue box in a little bit. But even so, it's like she opens that thing up. She pulls the key out. There's a bunch of cash in there. They don't really explain all the cash. You know what I mean? You see it in the former. Or in the, mm -hmm. in, when we get past the, the, that threshold and we realize what we've seen isn't real. Um, it, it's just one of those fucking scripts, dude, where I want to ask you, Lynch, who is known for, what, meditating and being like, I got the scene. Give me three bottles of ketchup. Like, that's mm -hmm. his deal. Uh, this movie seems a little too fucking precise and a little yeah. too amazing to have been just i'm gonna go meditate and come back with the act three like because like everything that happens in that third act is so perfectly mirroring down to the opening scene like i you know what when we get to that naomi watts scene now in reality going to maholland drive i'm scared man like i'm fucking physically frightened by what's about to happen on screen uh yeah. and again it's just the idea of giving you an expectation subverting that and then pulling you out of this reality and that's I don't know, dude. I was so blown away by this movie today, and I've seen it so many times, but I think, yeah. like, today was the day I saw it. You know right. when people said you listened, but you didn't hear? Like, that's, mm -hmm. that's how I felt today about fucking David Lynch. Where it, like, actually, like, really hits you, yeah. Um, no, it's, it's a wonderful movie. I know we're talking in circles or talking in riddles, but it's kind of a riddle of a movie. It's not something that I think you can fully appreciate right out of the gate. It's something that t takes a minute, um takes a few watches so i would really recommend it um and recommend that you watch it more than once if you've already seen it and maybe didn't care for it um it's it's very much worth kind of falling into um and that's a great thing about david lynch is just uh sort of uh surrendering to uh his weird current don't try to understand it right out of the gate like it'll come to you in time but um, what i will say is unlike the return which it's not like you can't follow some sort of baseline there but like i think the ambiguity and not knowing is a big part of what makes that so special um yeah. this, there's like you can follow this fucking movie i like it's it's all about that first time but after that first time i think you're golden you know what i mean yeah. um and it, i don't i just for a guy who has been so singular and so weird i was thinking like you can go back and think about like those holy shit moments in his films because mm -hmm. there always are these things that are so singularly weird that it couldn't come from anyone else uh, yeah. you know, we talked about Tarantino, whatever, but like Tarantino borrows from other people. Like Lynch has Lynch things like that yeah. only Lynch is doing <laughs> that when you see it, I see it in other works and I'm like, fuck this guy for not yeah. citing his well, professor I, I, Lynch. 
in fairness to Tarantino, he does have his dialogue and people have tried to imitate that. It, it's sort of like anybody who tries to imitate either Lynch or Tarantino, it never works out for him. It's never going to be as good. Um, there's never going to be a good Lynch knockoff movie. There's never going to be a good Tarantino knockoff movie. Like only right. those two guys can do what they do. Um, which makes it special. Um, well, I was going to say quickly too, what I really like about this movie is that it's like, for as depressing as this has sounded, holy shit, is this movie hilarious. Like, yeah, it's like full of diversions and shit. Yeah. Well, and, and I, that's where I question how much of that was filmed early on and how much of that is like, because they're a classic, like, you ever go back and watch Twin Peaks, The Missing Pieces or whatever? Uh, I've only seen parts. Well, there's a deleted scene where it's just a guy talking about two by fours. Mm -hmm. And how it's like a quarter inch off yeah, 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 yeah. So, that scene, and it just yeah. goes on, and you're like, "Oh, that's fucking amazing!" <laughs> like, right? And I can see like, why it was cut, but <laughs> but it it gives you the flavor, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And so uh, there's just a couple couple like non sequitur scenes that don't really do anything, but are amazing. And I love the hitman scene in the beginning, which may, yeah. dude, honestly, maybe the funniest escalating scene <laughs> of comedy ever okay yeah. like it's amazing dude yeah that was uh, almost like a coen brothersy kind of uh scene um thrown in the middle of like this weird los angeles surreal noir right um but yeah th there it is and it's it's fucking great and then like, thoreau like which by the way he really aged into that face and hairline i gotta throw that out there like, just I, I just <laughs> yeah. got done rewatching the leftovers i'm like bro if i can look like that when i'm 40 i saw a young uh justin thoreau and i'm like nah dude like that guy nah. had a five head it was <laughs> huge uh but he really aged into that and also hilarious and we get that whole weird scene with billy ray cyrus for some reason <laughs> right I love how understanding Billy Ray Cyrus is in this. By the way, just contextually, if you haven't seen this, which go watch it, it's amazing. But contextually, this movie director is being forced to cast a woman he doesn't want to cast, right? Like, his control is being taken away from him. And he's like, fuck it, I'm just going to go home. He goes home, finds his wife cheating on him with Billy Ray Cyrus. And what I love is how understanding and kind Billy Ray Cyrus is throughout this whole scene. <laughs> Darlene, he's upset. He's probably upset. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, the whole the whole goddamn thing. He's right. just he's such a sweetheart. And man. and I love that in that house, there's always that one kind of bluesy jazz song playing, that, <laughs> right. like on a fucking loop. Like there's a later scene where like kind of like a hitman goon type character is looking mm -hmm. for Justin Theroux's character, and like he walks in, same song is playing. She's still hanging out with Billy Ray Cyrus. Right. It's great. Well, but again, so this goes into the whole explanation of the dream, right? Because that whole subplot seemingly has nothing to do with anything. But I would right. say that, again, if, if you're everyone in your dreams, Justin Thoreau is losing control, right? Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, maybe not, he's being forced to cast the girl, whatever. That's, that's a whole different story. But it's like, I think that that directly ties into uh, Naomi Watts' character story. And I also think, like, it has some, some of the best detours. Like, him going to that ranch and meeting the eyebrowless cowboy, cowboy. Is incredible yeah. like one of the best things and that soundtrack right. and you also see him later at that third act he's just at, at a at the rap party or something for half a second you know mm -hmm. so i don't know it's it's just this it's it's this magic trick of everything that you saw preceding it actually paying off like the idea of it was yeah. all a dream is pretty goddamn amazing in this case which is not something that i can say about any other thing that's ever used it yeah, I mean, Lynch understands uh, the subconscious, I think, better than most people do. And I, I would owe that, I guess, to meditation. I don't meditate, um, but uh, this guy does, like, religiously. And it Transcendental shows, meditation, right? Yeah, TM. So it's um, not like, do you have, like, an acid trip every time you do it? What's the deal with that? 
<laughs> I, I think I think you just you have special chance or something. I don't really know. Um, special chance. Oh shit. Yeah, or chance like you get spiritual guidance. I'm not really sure. He lights some incense. You know, smoke a doobie. Um, where does it rate in a career? And I know you you came on and you said this is probably your favorite movie, but yeah, I would say that like where does it rate? In a, in a couple of different categories and the great lexicon of LA films, which is something we're going to continue to study. We're going to study it right after we get done talking about this with under the silver Lake. We're going to talk about it with Chinatown. We'll talk about it with a bunch of other films that are coming up in the pantheon of great LA films. Where does it rank for you? And then where does it rank in Lynch's like work itself, considering what he's most popular for and considering how wonderful the return is. I mean, I'm just curious to see how it stacks up for you. I mean, I'd still, I'd still say it's my favorite Lynch, um, but that's like, I don't know, picking your favorite kid. Maybe that's easy. I don't have kids. Um, people say it's hard, though. Um, Liars. But no, it, it's, it's still my favorite Lynch. In terms of like where it ranks for my favorite L.A. film, like this movie, we should say, really gets into, and one of the, thi- one of the reasons I think it pairs well with Under the Silver Lake, aside from the fact that they're both weird and sort of like episodic, is that they both concern uh, or both have this view of Los Angeles as being this kind of otherworldly place that's dominated by forces just on the periphery, just outside of your understanding, dark sort of puppet masters pulling the strings and everything, and lead characters who are trying to navigate their way through that or realizing that there's more to the story, there's a man behind the curtain. Um, right. There's a literal man surrounded by curtains in this movie. Uh, Michael Anderson, the um, dwarf from Twin Peaks, in a full-bodied, regular-sized man suit. Um, <laughs> incidentally, uh, sort of like calmly barking orders at people and people having these cryptic phone conversations, saying "This right. is the girl for the movie" or whatever. Um, th- there's a lot of this sort of vibe in this film where uh, that LA is run. Um, by forces that we don't understand uh which no, makes I th- it i think kind of a quintessential statement on la and the film industry itself right so where where it ranks i don't know um it's hard to say because like i fucking love sunset boulevard and who am i to say that this is better than that i love la confidential i'd say it's better than that but is it better la confidential of what that does i don't know Well, i think it what's unique about it and i think believe it or not the only film that can kind of match it would be something like nightcrawler which is wonderful but also shows you a side of la that you've never seen before you know what i mean like when everyone else is sleeping this person's out you would put nightcrawler up there with this i would put nightcrawler in its depiction of la if we're talking about like what what's so singularly unique about it right Hmm. and as much that like he films the new york skyline in a way i've never seen his la is fucking horrifying to me it is it it is the anti-glamorization at the same time it's using old school hollywood techniques to give you that glamour and he's using that technique against it you know what i mean it's like he's using its own power against it and i think that that's like a wonderful thing uh, so, Briefly, you know. one of my favorite things that he does in this movie was sound design, because sound design in Lynch movies in general is always next level good. Uh, there are a few helicopter shots in this movie. Anytime there's a helicopter shot, he'll take the sound of the helicopter blades and use it in the sound design or right. in the sound mix and like distort the sound of the helicopter blades. So it sounds like this low, ominous, like over the soundtrack, which I think is great. And it gives the LA skyline even more of like a kind of ominous eerie sort of vibe yeah i mean there's so many things he does in that film that i just again not to like we're just circle jerking this guy and we're all fans obviously but i, I feel like it, it 
it's almost a, like the best place to start someone with Twin Peaks. I never thought I'd say that. Or maybe like Wild at Heart. Maybe Wild at Heart has just enough weird random violence and funny Nick Cage impersonations that it's like perfect starter pack. I think, I think Wild at Heart was the first thing you showed me. So, you know, maybe that's it. But Mulholland Drive yeah. is the one where it's got all the signature Lynchian things. It's got moments of, like, straight-up comedy, the most unnerving shit in the world. And I just yeah. – I'm always so, you know, slack-jawed whenever he does something that is not flashy and yet more effective than what anyone else can do. Uh, you right. know, like that, that winky scene where, where they're going to the back. And it's just literally a camera slowly trailing about to turn a corner. And he makes yeah. turning that corner so horrifying to the point that when we see that shot again at the end, right, mm -hmm. at this big pivotal moment of, of the blue box, and I want to talk about that, that we can move on, um, you know, it, it's, it's just some next level fucking filmmaking, man, because it should not be that easy or in, I guess that hard to, to, to manipulate us into being scared of something. Like we're scared of darkness. We're scared of all this shit, but somehow just a slow camera menacingly moving towards this thing is the scariest shot of the whole fucking film to me which is yeah. incredible i i mean uh it's it's a straight up horror movie to me um some people have argued with me about that uh but it's it's got it's a actually pervasive... a rom-com oh <laughs> it's a foreign rom-com sorry <laughs> i thought you were checking imdb just now like looking down checking out it's actually a IMDb. imdb's <laughs> bullshit <laughs> isn't he the one who hates imdb david lynch probably some, someone hates it um, uh, yeah, go ahead. no, Sorry. like, like it's, it's a straight up horror movie. I would, I would call it that. I don't know if you would. Um, but, uh, it's almost a horror movie about what LA can do to people or what the, uh, allure of Hollywood can, can do to people, right. how it chews people up and spits them out. Um, one last note about Naomi Watts in this, uh, when she does the turn from Betty to Diane, the first time I saw this, I didn't realize it was the same actress. For like a full five minutes that's how much her face like was changed like that's right. how much her performance her physicality was different um so like really like fucking wonderful performance from her but that that's all i'll say about naomi she did great she killed it yeah she's a fucking treasure that does not get proper love i mean people like her now but i don't i still don't think people like recognize that performance for how great it is um mm -hmm. so quickly the blue box blue box doesn't actually signify like any one thing but what i like about the blue box in general is if i can keep i, I have a theory about it i mean well, it i, I think what it holds know. is that conduit is like that access monday but i'm curious what do you have to say go ahead I mean, it, it's probably nothing you haven't thought of before, but I feel like the box is literally just like the uh, the fantasy. Like the box is the fantasy. And when they join together, um, the fantasy crumbles, the box opens, and we are transported out of that fantasy world. Like the right. box is containing the delusion, basically. Right, sure. Yeah, That's okay. It. So we're on the same page. I mean, I just, yeah. I, 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 did, I, what I meant is it didn't mean any one specific thing for like her character. Like mm. what it is, is like the blue key. The blue key is this, this, that was the uh, lock and key of the entire fantasy and the reality, right? Right. So when she wakes up and she sees the blue key, she knows the deed's been done. Right. Uh, and I, I yeah, I, it's, it's just one of those things where I really love it, where it's such a simple premise and this thing that like, doesn't need to ever be explained. Sorry to bring up Tarantino again, but I think about the Pulp Fiction briefcase or whatever. Mm. That was taken from something. I forget what. I think it's I think it's Hitchcock maybe or doesn't matter. The the point is that uh that's something that was taken and he used it to great effect, but it was it was borrowed property whereas like Lynch just thought of a of, of a blue box and somehow it's like the most effective 
kind of weird MacGuffin. I don't, I don't even know if I'm what I'm saying right now. I'm sorry. It's just like, it's a weird visual flair to give you that you can obsess over long after it's gone. When you think about the movie in abstract, you're like, oh, it's that movie with that fucking blue box. You know what I mean? Right. But it doesn't mean anything necessarily. It's a placeholder for this mm. other world. And I thought that that was really wonderful, man. Yeah. Um, any final words on Mulholland Drive, sir? It's just got so many great visual moments. Um, like, and I know I'm rambling here. I'm just bullet pointing things I like in it. Um, but just the this weird effect he does, and I have no idea how he does it, where the camera will be out of focus, yeah, and it'll like start shifting around until it just snaps right into focus. And I have no idea how he did it. I'm sure it was a very simple, like something in front of the lens trick, but it's just so great. Um, also like just Club Silencio, that entire sequence where it marries kind of the old Hollywood style of filmmaking into this sort of new darker filmmaking where reality is fully encroaching, um, on her fantasy and it becomes like this full on Lynchian nightmare. Um, the fact that when she kills herself at the end and the bed erupts in smoke, her bedpost is lit just like the microphone at Club Silencio. Mm. And then we cut to the woman with the blue hair, um, just so many great little touches. Uh, like you said, I think it's a great intro to Lynch. Um, if you're willing to be open to it, it's got the emotional through line. It's got the basic basic detective story to draw you in. Um, but it's also got surrealism, but it's not so surreal. It's not in Inland Empire or Twin Peaks The Return where it's like so weird that it would turn you off right away. Like if you're new to Lynch, this is a good place to start, I'd say. Yeah, no, I think it's wonderful. And I think... I think eventually people are going to catch up, you know, like, have you ever thought about that? Like, God forbid the day David Lynch dies 75 years from now, uh, right. ten, 20 more films and six more seasons. Of Smoking Twin five now. packs a day, <laughs> 180 <laughs> years old. Uh, what's been the secret? Do you want to expand on, uh, on the secret to your success? No, <laughs> like he's still cantankerous as fuck. No. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's wonderful. Uh, I'm just wondering what his reputation will be when he's gone. Uh, I think that's mm -hmm. the thing because I, there are people who certainly love him. You can see his influence in filmmakers today who obviously yeah. cite him, but the, I mean, the shit, kids don't know. The kids Walker don't know. influence Kubrick. Kubrick's like, favorite movie for a hot minute was Eraserhead. Like, Lynch is, Lynch is uh, no joke. I thought you were going to say like, Elephant Man for some reason or like Dune. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> Dude, I don't know. Kubrick loved Dune. <laughs> like, it may, it may have failed, but it had one fan named Stanley fucking Kubrick. Even Lynch hates Dune, but Kubrick fucking loved it. Yeah, man. Uh, so, yeah, go check it out. I'm sorry if we did if we did a piss poor job there. It really is like a weird uh, puzzle box uh, etch-a-sketch etch of a fucking movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's but, got thrills. It's got chills. It's got romance. It's got drama. It's got Justin Theroux running around with pink paint on him. It's got a cowboy. It's got it all. What are you waiting for? Go see Mulholland Drive. 10 Nailed out of it. 10. Well, let's move on to Under the Silver Lake then, Max, because I would say this. Uh, it was my most anticipated film. Yeah, so I hit you up, and I've seen this movie like five times since March. Um, have have I, you really seen it five I times? I have. I like watched it the first time. I bought it to watch it. It was for some reason. Like, let me just tell you, I didn't. I was excited about the movie from the first time I saw the trailer, right? Yeah. And, this, and this film was supposed to come out a long time ago. It premiered at Cannes, I think, like uh, two, two, 2018 Cannes or something. Yeah, it did it, not get a good reception. Which is interesting because they kept pushing it back and they said, hey, go back and re-edit it. And then after a year, he's like, I'm sticking with my original cut. Like the, what we saw was what premiered at Cannes. 
Mm. Uh, and I think that that's very interesting. One, I love the artistic integrity because, like, having seen the film, you didn't need to cut a goddamn thing. I, like, I, I, I go to bat for that motherfucker so hard for not giving a fuck about what a studio says, man. Like, yeah. and, he, and he had some artistic integrity or whatever, so great. Uh, finally comes out, and they just quietly release that son of a bitch. They put it out in two theaters and put it on Amazon, like, the next yeah. day. Like so VOD. I didn't really care. Then I went to Silver Lake like the week that that was coming out and yeah. fell in love with it because it's weird and magical and weird and like coyotes are running around and and it's just it's very oh because because that is a part of this movie i haven't been to silver i've been to la but not silver lake yeah, yeah. are coyotes really running around last time we were lake? there so we were in la what like three weeks ago a month ago or something like that like uh-huh. we went there and we were going to the airbnb because they had fucking our flight got delayed so we were stuck out there and when we went up we were actually more in the mountains of silver lake than we had ever been but we were across the street from where we had stayed the other week right yeah uh coyotes two coyotes just like i'm a coyote what's up this is my hill and like we stayed in that car for five seconds for five minutes until those goddamn coyotes left because dolores was scared of them you know so it, well it was a talking coyote of course. it was a talking coyote I'd, which I'd be scared too. would scare the best of us certainly but <laughs> my point is that i i fell in love i mean you know me it's notoriously anti-la before i went on that trip came right. back like silver lake is magic it's a mm-hmm. goddamn wonderland and we need to be there all of us uh <laughs> then under the silver lake which i was like well i really like the filmmaker it follows is pretty great uh, yeah like after you make a movie like it follows you pretty much get to make any movie that you want and this guy definitely made any movie that he wanted like went uh, completely uncompromising yeah it's pretty batshit crazy in the best yeah. ways and i remember after watching it i messaged you like i listen um I just something amazing just happened, but I don't yeah. know if this movie is great or really bad. <laughs> but yeah, either way, something amazing just happened. Then uh, I watched it literally the next day after I watched it. It was like, mm-hmm. bro, I think this movie might be a fucking masterpiece. No one's talking about it. Uh, and yeah. then I had to wait for like two more weeks before you finally watched that movie. But when mm-hmm. you watch the movie, and it much to my fucking uh, happiness and my reinforced belief in myself. You were yeah. like, listen, dude, it's actually really good. And I was like, oh, shit. So under yeah. the Silver Lake, even though critically, what is it sitting at, like a 58%? Like people don't. I, you know what? I don't even pay attention. But yes, it, it was I like use it as a, bar- as a brand. Devices. Yeah. Very uh, divisive. So, yeah. So you watched it. You dug it. Uh, let's set the table really quickly if, if we can. So, again, the follow-up from the director of It Follows decides yeah. to make. And, and like you said, great critical acclaim, made a great indie film, can make anything yeah. you want. And, and, it's not, and it's not just a great indie film. It kind of, not single-handedly, but it was like at the forefront of that new A24 era brand of horror. Like this sort of like horror renaissance that we're going through right now, like kind of sort of started with It Follows. At least right. it was one of the first, like that, the Babadook, yeah, Babadook the, 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 the Witch, the Witch are the big three. Like, yeah. those are like, holy shit, we're into something now. We're right. Into Had that, like, story. distorted synthwave soundtrack and, you know, dealing with, like, themes of growing up and adulthood and et cetera. Um, so this guy, yeah, like I said, can make any fucking thing that he wants. Um, and I'll let you lead the way here, but... Well, what he decides to do is to make basically an Alice in Wonderland, a very lazy private eye film is kind of what he ends up making. He, he makes this weird love letter to Los Angeles, but at the same time, is it a love letter? 
Uh, mm. He makes a, a weird love letter to an entire generation, but is it a love letter? Like, that's the thing we keep coming back to this entire time is that this guy yeah. made a film that plays one way if you're looking at it from a certain angle. But right. if you look at it from the right angle, if you got the right lighting on it, you're like, holy shit. Um, yeah. And so uh, who's the fucking Spider-Man? Andrew Garfield plays our protagonist. Yeah. And basically Andrew Garfield is a slacker, stoner fucking guy who's doing nothing with his life. Five months past due on his rent. He's just honestly like a despicable character pretty well, much the, But they tell you that yeah, from yeah. the very beginning. I mean, his initial scene, you're, you're seeing him just like look at a woman, like with binoculars, rear window, yeah. Jimmy Stewart looking at a woman like naked, watching this other woman swim, like voyeuristic, which is visually, if we can, if we can mention that very similar to it follows right like you could tell the visual language that it was the same guy i felt yeah yeah no it's uh that i think that's one of the first things that i said to you is that like you can tell it's from the director of it follows because there are a couple of scenes of horror but it's not a horror movie um but it definitely does have a voyeuristic edge to it uh where the camera will kind of be sort of lingering from his point of view mostly on women um but it's it's definitely got a very like point of view style uh, I totally agree. Uh, so our slacker Sam one day uh, sees this beautiful woman uh, swimming mm. in the pool, and he sort of gets obsessed with her a little bit. And they spend one evening together. Nothing, nothing bad happened. I mean, they just kiss a little bit. They're stoned. They're watching How to Marry a Millionaire, which mm. you know. Which uh, can I just say that I we were just talking about Lynch and old Hollywood, but this film wears that on its sleeves so fucking hard. You know, yeah, like all these love letters visual references but even like little things like tombstone names yeah being famous directors and i and i really like that uh, after their magical night together uh he goes to see her again and she is gone 100 gone all her shit's fucking gone and that doesn't sit well with him you know right. so he ends up embarking on a on a wild goose chase of sorts to find this woman that he spent one meaningful night with and we go down the rabbit hole and the rest of the film is you know sam looking for her uh, right. and, and not just looking for her, but looking for her via coded messages and songs and film clues, symbols, symbology, um, graffiti all around Los Angeles. And it sort of becomes this obsessive, paranoid journey. All in the backdrop, may I, may I add, like we're, I told you that Silver Lake is this weird, magical place. And I, and I couldn't really explain why when mm. I was there. But this movie kind of nailed it in, just in the opening scene with that idea of like beware of the the dog killer yeah. you know what I'm talking about where you're like, Oh, this is weird. Like, like that yeah. one detail sets you up and you realize this is a slightly heightened world. You know what I mean? And <laughs> right. weirdly the emotional backdrop of the film, in my opinion, is like the, the serial dog or the dog serial killer, even though yeah. that's not like mentioned more than two or three times and is never revealed really. You know what I mean? Like it ends up somehow having, I think such emotional stakes by the time we get to the end of the film. So this is weird with a movie like this where there's twists and there's turns. All right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I think we would be doing a poor job if we tried to recount literally everything that happened in this film. I think that that would be dumb. And if you haven't seen the film, which is the reason we're covering this, because we think it's like criminally underrated and criminally yeah. unseen, you know, and it's on Amazon prime. There's millions and millions I wish of I Amazon prime that. members. I so thought it the day watch. came out. Well, yeah. Pro tip, uh, anything released on a 24, I don't know if this is going to last forever. will eventually come out on Amazon prime. Uh -oh. So, Okay. Uh, you know, don't don't buy a twenty four shit because uh, it's gonna be on Prime anyway. Unless it's the or most do transformative. If you want to support them. 
Yeah. yeah. Unless it's the most transformative fucking movie of the last five years. I don't know if that's true, but like it, it hit me in a way that I wasn't prepared for in terms of just being like, this guy is doing whatever he wants, gives mm. no fucks about it, taking every left turn he wants to take a right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you yeah. know that saying, right? Like you take enough left turns, you basically take it a right at some point. <laughs> like, right. That's what he decides to do. Uh, and at the same time, such a scathing review of us in a way, like he's a little yeah. bit older than us. Uh, the character is like, you know, I'm 29, you're 29, but kind of uh, talking shit about our entire generation, which I love. Yeah. Yeah, especially, like, I, I think, like, a certain kind of, like, male um, in his 20s to early 30s somethings, directionless type of guy that's, like, sort of wrapped up in nostalgia or, like, builds his entire personality around the music that they listen to or, you know, the TV shows or movies that they watch. Um, and I think, like, a very specific L.A. kind of dude, too, um, which, like, all of his friends are kind of, like, falling into that sort of silver lake hipster Topher Grace wearing a fucking hat right. and ear gauges uh, type of thing. Um, but yeah, we, we can get into that a little bit. Uh, what do you think of the Andrew Garfield character overall? Like, what do you think he's saying um, with that character? Oh, it's not, it's again, like you can confuse it at, at yeah. first for being like, oh, he's really into this he's, guy. This is great. Yeah, this is the Raymond Chandler uh, hero of the noirish story, right? This yeah, is the guy man. we're following. But like you said, he's he's uh, completely behind on his rent. His car gets repossessed like 30, 40 minutes into the movie. Um, for a good chunk of the movie, he smells terrible. And right. everybody's like, can't stand to be around him. Um, he beats up children in the first 20 minutes. And somehow the movie makes you forget about that. He beats up several people in this movie. Uh, kills a man, arguably. Um, and we're still like following this guy and there's almost no redeemable qualities about him by the end of it. No, none. And they, they do a lot of great things with simple details and simple execution of those. There's a part later where they're actually walking by the reservoir and a homeless man asks them for money. And he's like, I don't care if it's unpopular, man. I fucking hate the homeless. Like really casting right. aspersions. And this is like, a guy that's a, the fact that he's about to be homeless. Yeah. He's got a day to come up with rent money and makes no efforts to do that, by the way. Right. And the whole movie, uh, you're making actually an interesting point, we should say, takes place in real time where this mm -hmm. guy, like it takes place only over a couple of days. And this is this weird misadventure that he gets into in the process. Right. Um, what's weird about this, and it kind of goes into why I think it is a scathing review of a certain type of man uh, yeah. around our age, is just the idea that like, the lengths he's going to to basically find a stranger who may not want to be found. If there's one complaint right. to really say about this film is that, like, spoiler alert, he ends up finding the lady, which in a way mm -hmm. gets him what he wants, even if it's not quite what he wants. And right. it has her be okay with it. But mm -hmm. the idea is that he goes on this whole misadventure, sort of, like, uh, <laughs> kind of creepily chasing down a woman who, if she wanted to tell him what was up, she would have told him what was up. Right. A woman who he spent all of a grand total of, like, a couple hours with, maybe? Right. And all they did was make out. And he's like basically putting all of his time, effort, and attention into finding this woman who, like you said, probably doesn't want to be found. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm just blown away because there's so many things to fucking talk about with this movie. Uh, yeah. It's just like the organization of it is going to drive me fucking crazy. <laughs> well, well I, I will say the first time I saw this movie uh, for the first, up until you get to the infamous now infamous uh songwriter scene 
um, I was not sure how I felt about it. It, because it's so episodic it's so loosely uh strung together it's basically just him going to new locations and that's something i'll say about this movie is almost every scene is a new location a new set a new house a new place um with very little to connect each scene aside from the fact that andrew garfield's there um and i did not know how to feel about it i was mostly i was about to text you and be like i don't really like this that much and then we get to this insane scene that sort of ties everything together in a weird way it is the thesis statement of Mm -hmm. not just that film but the our like our generation dude i like yeah this was the scene where i was like i'm liking this movie i like the journey i'm on but then this scene happened and i knew i was watching something i know that like it's in vogue to kind of hate on wes anderson a little bit but i always go back to like i remember the first time i watched royal tenenbaums and it's that scene where Margot gets off the bus by way of the Green Line bus, <laughs> mm-hmm. as Alec Baldwin narrates. And then yeah. Nico's These Days comes on, and Richie Tenenbaum is watching her get off, and everything slows down, and you see the like the Navy men in perfect unison walking behind them and stuff like that. And it was something I saw that when I was eleven. Like I remember yeah. that movie so vividly because my mom loved the preview, but then saw <laughs> the movie and hated it. But me, I was like. Moms I just, do not like Wes Anderson. It's weird. <laughs> I felt my mind expand watching that scene, man. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying like, oh, I felt my mind expand watching it, but I knew it when I saw it because I felt it. You know, yeah. we watch films and we intellectualize it, but do we feel it all the time? The truth is no. Like not every film is worthy of being felt. We get to this scene, which I also want to point out quickly, I consider this film oddly magical realistic, right? Like there, mm. there, there is some weird shit going on. There's that night owl character. What is she called? Do you remember what she's called in that movie? You just rewatched I, it. I honestly forget. It's like the owl lady or something like that. There's this myth that there's this woman wearing a taxidermied uh, owl mask is uh, walking into people's homes and seducing them and murdering them right. uh, in their beds. Yeah. Which like when you see it in the film, because you do see it in the film, it's like right. oh shit, <laughs> like this came out of nowhere. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, but but it's 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 tying all this together where like there are these things that are happening that are so surreal, which I think coming back to the dog killer thing, when we get to that third act, it's like so amazing. But the songwriter scene was the the moment that delineated how I felt about the entire film because it was some of the best writing that I had really seen. Like it was well fucking written. It was the culmination of this character where up until now, maybe you have thought that he was the protagonist of his story. You know what right. I mean? But he's not. He's not. And everything that he is and everything that he will be has been prescribed to him. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we didn't really get into the codes aspect of it, but this is the man who's obsessed with finding codes in everyday things, right? right. He goes on this whole adventure. He finds uh, the key important pieces of information by decoding messages, by listening to song lyrics, by looking at maps from video mm-hmm. games that, that perfectly superimpose over L.A. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, I, I, w- I would argue that the, the, the great punchline of the movie is that it's a movie that where, it, like, the main character isn't just obsessed with codes. The movie itself is filled with codes that he's not even noticing. That, like, if you go on the subreddit for this movie, it's kind of mind-blowing, like, how many fucking codes there are and how many things there are to unpack. But the great punchline of the movie is that I would say, like, the final thesis statement of the movie is that it was a waste of time to ever be concerning yourself or with these codes or for that main character to be, like, falling down this rabbit hole when he should be focusing on shit like paying the rent, being a reasonable person, like, being a good person to, like, the women in his life. See, I, I, paying I, I, for I, his car. 
I think we need to set this up even better because when I'm talking about like, holy shit, it's a fucking incredible scene. After many numerous misadventures, he ends up going to the songwriter's house, right? Because he's decoded lyrics. These lyrics have given him information. He's like, clearly someone has to be doing this. And he scales the walls and he climbs at the top of the Mount Hollywood and he finds this mansion. Go ahead. Well, we should mention that like, and I noticed it only on this most recent rewatch, um, that when he's going up to this fabled uh, songwriter's house and the songwriter doesn't have a name other than the songwriter, um, it's like a matte painting, an actual honest-to-God matte painting of this like storybook mansion in the hills of Hollywood um, that I did not notice before. Like if you want to talk about tributes to old Hollywood, and it's got like a very old Hollywood vibe in a lot of parts. Like it's got right. that kind of Bernard Herrmann style Hitchcockian score. It's got this great matte painting shot. And then he goes up to this house. I'll let you take it from there, but just wanted to note that. No, for sure. And and I think it's amazing that this the entirety of the scene is about three and a half minutes, maybe four minutes. It's not long, right? Like this guy mm-hmm. gets in there and there's a very elderly man playing the piano. And he's right. like, come on in, man. And, and, and he basically interrogates him. He's asking him like, what, who gave you these codes? You know, like, 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 what do you know? Blah, 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 blah. And what you find out right away is like you said, it's like one, it's, it's a feudal fucking thing that you're doing, trying yeah. to pay attention, trying to make sense of this. If you want to get existential with it, let's take a bird's eye view quickly. I mean, I think he's saying that about life. I think this is his thesis statement on life itself, right? Like trying to find meaning, trying to assign meaning, trying to spend your life. Well, you know, trying to find meaning is one thing, but spending your entire life in the pursuit of meaning in a meaningless world is bullshit. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to being a condemnation against us as these kids, they're like specifically, and I think you know it because it gives me goosebumps every time I hear it, but he's playing this medley of songs that he is the songwriter. Every big hit song that you've ever heard, it was him who wrote it. Right. Right. He's been performing this. He's been the, the, the voice of your parents and your parents rebellion. More importantly, he's been the voice of your own rebellion and he plays those opening chords to smells like teen spirit from Nirvana. Right. Right. Dude, that's that's the moment. He's like, when you rebelled, it was me you were rebelling to. And I'm like, yeah. oh, my God. That wasn't dude. written on distorted guitar. That was written between a blowjob and an omelet. Um, oh, and he's cackling the whole time, laughing in Andrew Garfield's face as he's getting more and more visibly upset. Um, and it just rises to a fever pitch where uh, the songwriter pulls a gun on him and then Andrew uh, Garfield bashes his fucking face in yeah. with Kurt Cobain's guitar. Which are you ready for, by the way, in a million years? You're like, oh, shit. Like- yeah, I was like, I, I knew the tension was rising, but holy shit. Because up until now, Andrew Garfield, yeah, he's been violent. He's beat up a couple of people, but uh, not not on that level. Not a murderer, yeah. Yeah, because that, that dude's face turns into a pile of black goo immediately. Which, again, then it comes into question whether that's real. Now, the movie presents it as like right. 100%. That's what happened. But I have to ask you if we're going to get into it a little I, bit. Yeah, I mean, like, how literally can you take that scene? Because, like, he's even saying that he wrote, isn't there, like, a Beethoven composition in there? Like, I wrote this and this and this and this. Yeah, it's, like, everything from Beethoven to the Backstreet Boys, this guy's had his hands in at some point. But but can I tell you why I like that? Because there's this, it's not, like, a real theory, but it's something that I adore as someone who loves great literature, which there is this theory that the spirit of a great writer has just passed on to other great writers through generations, right? Like right. the guy who uh, 
Cervantes and Shakespeare are the same person. It's just the spirit of a writer who kept going from, from vessel to vessel. You know what I mean? Mm. In a way, I really like that because it's like, yeah, like the idea is that the songwriter is not this old cantankerous fuck. Right. You know, he, he's, a, he's a fucking, he's a, he's a smokescreen, dude. He's an illusion. Like, right. that, that's all he really is. But it represents this larger thing. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's like that's the one part of the film that you can't necessarily take at face value, though the film presents it as such. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I would agree. Like, I don't think that it's something that we can take super literally. Like, it's just more what it represents. And we don't even have to take the songwriter at his word. It's more like what his overall point is, which is that like everything that you have assigned meaning to or that you hold dear is is a is a product it's 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 a facade it's um he says something about uh this sh- like your ambitions are shells for I- i'm fucking yeah up you're you're it's it's like it's sad that we're both gonna fuck this up because it's yeah the, it, it's the fucking exclamation point to the whole scene to me yeah, yeah. he's like your your dreams and your ambitions were built on the backs of better and more talented men or something like that and it's like oh god damn dude right. like and I'm, I'm sorry if that like me saying it doesn't give it the weight but that guy by the way who is not an 80 year old uh ephemeral geist he's actually like a 40 year old jewish dude who was in that uh russian doll show you know what i'm talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he, in heavy makeup he fucking kills it and considering yeah. everything that led up to that final line delivery like i just in the way that i told you i felt like oh man, i'll never write something that Mm-hmm. incredible and even if the whole film isn't that incredible it's like that is the linchpin if that right. scene isn't in the film the film is not this incredible thing that i've been right. dreaming about for the last couple of months because it all brings you back to the idea that andrew garfield's character is essentially a guy who is not in control who in every scene is wrestling for some kind of control right. so the idea of him like the the whole motivating force for him finding this woman it's never about the woman it's about him basically giving himself a distraction or being in control of the situation or finding the truth that the truth will set him free or lead him to some higher plane or something. And we find out it doesn't. He, well, he goes I mean, on this journey, right? Should we, should we go into that? Like he, he ends up finding the lady. I mean, I think yeah. that's an important aspect of the story. He goes on this whole, uh, this whole adventure and this ends up finding Byzantine, her. uh, weird odyssey through LA. Yeah. Right, and but the weird thing about it is like, and there's a whole like we're doing a bad job giving you the rest of the world, but this movie is so batshit crazy that like mm. legit, it's not our fault. <laughs> like we could with with two hours, we couldn't do it justice. Yeah. you know what I mean. Mulholland but, Drive is easier to describe than this movie somehow, less, which makes yeah. no sense. Like Mulholland <laughs> Drive is a straight for it's the straight story sequel, like compared right. to Under the Silver Lake. But you know, he ends up finding the lady, and the lady has voluntarily chosen to be in entombed that's the right word right like Mm -hmm. entombed with a rich guy who is going to basically have a great year of fucking three different ladies but it's basically gonna die it's it's modeled after the egyptians they got to take their riches with them right yeah these these billionaires have been building these building these uh, bomb shelters that are sealed off from the rest of the world yeah uh waiting to die they call themselves kings like modern kings or gods and that they're going to literally ascend to a higher plane once they perish under the earth it really gives you the Hollywood sex cold angle that that movie was needing at the time. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> but he finds her, and 
it's it's surprisingly emotional. Like I'm gonna be yeah. honest, and maybe it's Garfield doing a fucking wonderful job, or maybe the writing is that good on the and page. And we, we should be know. clear, Garfield's speaking a great performance. I've never loved Garfield, but he was fantastic. In loved this. him in this, and what I loved yeah. is like I don't know if there's a London equivalent to Silver Lake, but mm -hmm. like I assume that wasn't his experience. So you know that guy fucking <laughs> acted, which I thought was incredible. He he finds this lady finds out that she made this choice willingly she's kind of okay with it you know what i mm -hmm. mean like everything's fine and this this whole adventure of finding her is great because you found her but you found her and it doesn't lead to anything you right. he had put so much into finding this woman that somehow she would be a salvation from everything that he wasn't he doesn't say that at any point but i think that's what it was like he is dissatisfied being five months back on his friend like he's dissatisfied being unmotivated he's so proactive and he is such the best version of himself i know it sounds weird because he beats up kids and stuff but he's the best version of himself in pursuit of her you know what i mean yeah. not a slacker it's all this other shit which brings me to a big point mm -hmm. which is like i told you we're in the backdrop of a of a dog killer right and we get this really wonderful scene near the end where by the way sorry to mention this in the 11th hour there's a homeless king <laughs> like, yeah. my bad but along the along the way of his great journey to find this woman he goes to griffith park and he is confronted by i just want to call him like almost an oracle like from the, from greek literature right like mm -hmm. this this character this homeless king who takes him through a park uh, walk through griffith park and i think ultimately to highland park and they come yeah. across coyotes and stuff like that Homeless King yeah. comes back at the end after he's found uh, his lady and holds him prisoner. Like, it's scary. It looks like this dude's going to die. And he confronts him with a simple question like, why did you have dog treats in your pocket? Right? <laughs> like, yeah. Well, dude, this is like such a beautiful moment for me. Where Because like, you're like, well, it's weird that they would bring up that dog uh, killer thing. And it's weird that when he first meets the lady that he loves, he just happens to have that dog treat on him. Right. Like mm -hmm. it's weird that he has this fever dream for a second that he witnesses a fucking dog be torn apart on his way back to his house. Right. Like right. there's a lot of evidence that's like, Oh my or, God. Or that like he has these fantasies or dreams or both of women barking like dogs too. Right. Yeah. I mean like yeah. there's a lot of things going into it. You're like, Oh shit. Like is this guy the dog killer? And they don't, confirm that they don't say if he is or if he isn't the homeless king seems to believe his answer but i think that was the first question you asked me like oh do you think he's the dog killer and i'm like dude i i think it's irrelevant because i think like even the fact that for a second a man could be so driven like like it's killing dogs this should not be beautiful or romantic and somehow this movie makes it the emotional crux of this character for me where he's like why did you have dog treats in your pocket and he's like, he just wanted, he just liked a girl. You know what I mean? I don't, I, am yeah. I wrong? Is this like Proud Boys material or is that like secretly beautiful? I'm Proud so, Boy. I'm so scared of myself right now. Like, I don't like the answer. What's going to happen? Walk me through it, guy. Uh, I, I, I mean, again, it's, it's another code for, for you to solve. It's leaving you with another mystery, something unknowable that may or may not change his character. But how much would it really change his character? If not he's much. A dog killer or not? Right, because this is a guy that we've seen either metaphorically or literally murder an old man on screen. He's beat up beat children. Up children. He, yep. he, he beat up about Jesus, the lead singer of Jesus and the Brides of Dracula. 
um, while the guy was shitting on the toilet. Poor guy. That was an unnecessary shot. I got to say, if there's one shot where I'm like, we didn't yeah. need that. Right. Like, I wonder if, like, all he could have done from the cans release was he, cut out that actual shit scene. What, like, what if that's what they were, like, requesting that he cut? Just that shot. Just that it's, scene. It's, it's the heart and soul of the entire production. I refuse to cut it. <laughs> you either shelve this fucking movie or you release it with that shit scene, man. Like, right. I don't know such a weird fucking movie and at the same time like again it's like you know when, when we watch movies i think like a part of us just wants to escape like that's the idea like i've, I've softened on people watching like reality shows and shit not that yeah. i'm watching it but it's just like look life's hard you want some escapism right that's why i watch movies, master chef sometimes i'm not gonna acknowledge that at all i still think that's <laughs> basic as fuck cook your own meals guy uh but but my point is like you you go to be transported to a place that for a little bit you could suspend your disbelief and hopefully at the same time gain something that you can take back with you. It's like, I'm not sure how many movies I've watched lately that have been brimming with such originality yeah. and I don't give a fuck, you know, just doing whatever it wanted. And I think it's so special, man. And I, and yeah. I think the legacy of this film is like, let's do it 10 years from now. Let's mark it. What's today's date, guy? I gotta, I gotta be real. August 7th, all right? So August 7th, 2029, We'll be way more successful than we are right now. We'll be pushing 40. Retro review, guy. I'll be 39 and loving it, okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> retro review. I want to know what the legacy of this film is ultimately because for me, it's like, I don't know a movie in the last I worry that years. it'll be like a, maybe a cult movie at best. I don't think it's ever going to be like a classic, but I could be wrong. Sure, but like Big Lebowski took that similar trajectory. Not that I'm comparing yeah. them, although I think at some point we were like, maybe Big Lebowski, it's too slack. Yeah, well, like, that, well, that's the thing about this movie. We were thinking about like, what can we pair this with uh, in terms of like the dick pics, um, you dick know, pics! options that we have. Dick pics! Um, because like, it's got the sort of meandering, episodic, oddball comedy of the big lebowski it's got the sort of surrealist horror dark seedy underbelly of la vibe of sure. and drive you know it's got like the private detective aspect of chinatown um it's it's got a lot of different elements it's got the sort of old hollywood sunset boulevard uh tragedy in it too um it's got all these different things it's definitely like a, a movie of influences but unlike tarantino at his worst, it's a movie that is completely its own thing. It's not something that I've ever quite seen before, but I still recognize it. Um, and that that's sort of what makes it worth watching to me, just right out of the gate. It is a fun, confusing, strange, interesting ride. Um, but I really do want to stress how fucking fun it is to watch, like once you just go along for that ride. Because it's full of just like funny scenes. Like there's this scene that I always forget about where Topher Grace and him are hanging out and Topher Grace has a drone camera and he like flies up to some woman and he's like, ooh, mama, wait for it. And like she takes <laughs> off her shirt and just starts crying. And then Andrew Garfield's like, all right, man, I'll see you later. <laughs> right, which I think, again, I think it is like letting you know, this is not, we're not glorifying <laughs> this. These guys are assholes. Right. They deserve everything that's happening right now. Uh, yeah, dude, I, I, I hope more than anything, I hope this guy takes this L. And hopes that, like George W. Bush, history will be kind. <laughs> because it's like, I don't Decision want... Decision points. <laughs> I don't want uh, him to suffer from a film that was not understood in its time, you know? Yeah, I, I hope that this doesn't turn into a thing where it's like, all right, lessons learned on that Under the Silver Lake flop. You know, I, I hope it doesn't turn into that. Um, I hope it's sort of like, yeah, I, I stand by my film. Yeah. And I and hope I, he still I, gets funding. 
Sure. And I think he will. I mean, I think he'll get funding to do something smaller, maybe not as crazy as under the silver Lake, you know, it didn't make money back, but yeah. I think it's a film that was necessary and probably like it, you know, I, I think the great art is always trying to say something about the time that it's living in as well. And I think like it absolutely did that in a way that maybe not a lot of films have done. We've seen, we've seen kind of these themes in like uh, Harmony Corinne's spring breakers and shit like that. Or that's uh, yeah. Spring breakers, right. Harmony Corinne, uh, Corinne, uh, um, yeah. Sophia Coppola's bling ring, you know, like the, this mm. idea of like what this generation is and is it a good thing? You know, like I right. think it's very interesting, but I think this is the one that said it most successfully. Yeah. Uh, because I, it's not made by a 40 year olds. <laughs> right. I think that helps, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I, I just, I'm so spent with it. I think it's such a wonderful film and I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. Is it the greatest thing of all time? No, but I think like it, it, it affected me in a way that, a film hasn't in quite a long time yeah I, being, I talked oh, sorry sorry go ahead well i was just gonna say not to be an asshole again about like marvel films and stuff like that but like <laughs> watching something like this makes me realize like what films are for as much as i love comics comics i think sort of need to be on the page like as, yeah. as i get older i well, realize these movies I, aren't what i want them to be i think that alternately I'll, I'll i'll offer you an alternative to that comics don't need to be on the page movies need to have a voice and a director Sure. You know, I just rewatched the Spider-Man trilogy and even Spider-Man 3 has more personality than most of the MCU for, for all of that movie's flaws. And it fucking has flaws. But I was watching that movie and it's like, at least that's a fucking film who has a director with a voice where I can watch a scene from it and go, that's Sam Raimi. That's David Robert Mitchell. Whereas the MCU, yeah, Taika Waititi has some improv or whatever, or James Gunn will have a few nice shots, but mostly it's the house MCU style. Right. Um, so yeah, like you're saying, it's really great to to see an original transportive uh, movie where you don't know where the fuck it's going to go. Um, highly recommend it. Yeah, man. I think it's wonderful. And listen, we've done two weeks in a row of some movies and shit. We're on a roll, guy. We're yeah. doing it. And I'm glad we got to talk about something that's maybe a little off the beaten path, maybe not seen by the masses, but I feel like it's our responsibility, right? Almost to talk yeah. about these things. As Americans. Uh, and so, you know, look, we're, we'll be back. We're going to do more of these. We're making this a regular thing now because we really like film and we want to kind of explore what we like about it. Uh, mm -hmm. Kind of get into interesting conversations about film. So do us a favor. Check out these movies, man. Watch Mulholland Drive. Watch Under the Silver Lake. Like, watch these movies. Like, let's let's start a dialogue about what we liked about them, what we didn't like yeah. about them. And, you know, send your friends your favorite dick pics. Like, maybe you have suggestions. Send them our way. Yep. Send Whatever me all them dick pics, please. Send all the dick pics. I relish in dick pics. You know this. It's, like, my favorite thing. Is I mean... Pics who who doesn't you know well, so so join us next time on movies and shit slash dick pics slash dick pics <laughs> <laughs>